It is really good to be back with you. I haven't been able to do that as much recently because I now often have responsibilities on Sunday morning. Um, but it's, it's so good to fellowship with you, and many of you have already told me that you're praying with us and for us, and, and that means a lot. Uh, the last time that I was here, I didn't actually get to see any of you <laughs> because we were in the doldrums of shelter in place. So a couple weeks after Easter, I, I recorded my sermon in an empty chapel and sent it to Drew, who uploaded it to your live stream, and that was the extent of my interaction with you. And you know, I, I have been so thankful for the technology we've had during the last year and a half that it's allowed us to worship with one another, it's allowed us to connect with one another while we've been, quote unquote, alone together. Uh, but I have to admit, there have been some drawbacks. Um, specifically, I'm talking about the algorithm. What I mean by that is all of the social media platforms we've been dealing with and interacting on, they, they all have these methods to try to keep us in their ecosystem and, and draw us further into the things that we like and the things we want to see so that we spend more time on their platforms. But what happens is something like this. You're scrolling through your feed, and a friend of yours posts a picture of just a really cute puppy, right? And you click on it, and you like it, because, oh, it's so cute. And then the next thing you know, every fifth post you see is, is puppies and, and kittens. And, and suddenly, the social media site thinks you're really into animals. And then you read a news article about something that's disconcerting to you. You read a couple articles about it. And the next thing you know, it's as if the only news happening in the world is this one event. And, and what happens is slowly and, and subtly, I think some of us have been getting shuttled into these enclosed echo chambers. And suddenly, we're only interacting with people who like the things we do and who read the articles we do and post the things we do. And, and it can get to the point that suddenly, people who are in a different echo chamber seem strange and foreign and maybe even evil. I, I became more cognizant of this when we began to come out and began to talk with one another. And I discovered that, as I was talking to people, that some people had a very different experience of the last year and a half than I did. A different experience of the pandemic, a different experience of the election, a different experience of the significant social events that have been happening. And I realized that even some of my closer friends, I was finding it harder to love them because I was only seeing this one-dimensional view of them. All I was seeing was what they were posting. And sometimes it's not the stuff that I would be posting. Some of, one of Jesus' most famous commands was to love one another. And I feel like usually that seems like such an obvious thing. Like if I were going to make up a religion, and someone were to ask me, Kevin, so what does it mean to be part of your religion? I'd be like, um, I don't know, love one another. Right? It just seems like this obvious thing that just everybody should do. But I've been seeing in the last year and a half that actually that can be really hard. In our current cultural moment, as we stagger out of isolation, it becomes more important than ever for us to love one another. See, we're experiencing in a new and different way something that has always been a dynamic in the church. God has brought people from different walks of life, 
different cultural backgrounds, different political persuasions, different generational influences, socioeconomic realities, and he's brought us all into one church, into one body. He's asked us to love one another. And from early on in the church, this was a challenge because people are used to loving people in their own tribe. We're used to sacrificing for our people. It's a lot harder to love those other people. But now those other people are part of our people. How do we do that? Why is it so difficult? Well, I think a, a big reason goes back to our, our sin problem, right? Last week, Deacon Casey talked about light and how light is used in the Bible as this metaphor for God, everything that is good and true and beautiful. But the Bible also talks about darkness. And it uses darkness as a metaphor for separation from God. I want to read from Romans chapter 1, verse 21. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This metaphor of darkness is so helpful for me because sin is like this thing that obscures our vision of God's world. It inhibits us from seeing the world as it really is. Those of us who have our mental, our, our, our visual faculties, which I realize not everyone does, but if you're able to see the world, there's a certain amount of information that you can gather. You can see the physical form of things the material shape of things. But there's this whole other dimension that, that we've lost the ability to see. The physical shape of something doesn't tell me what it's for. It doesn't tell me what it means. It doesn't tell me what its value is or how I relate to it. And with sin, we've lost an understanding of what this physical world and what one another are, are all about. It's a bit like if you've seen, there, there are videos on, on YouTube of dance troops that wear all black, and they paint fluorescent colors on their, on their I don't know, dance suits or whatever you call them. And, uh, and then they turn off of the lights and shine a black light. And it looks like stick figures dancing on stage or skeletons or something like that. And because there's just a, a small spectrum of light that's being reflected, you get this warped view of what's happening. And it shows something completely different than reality. And until you shine the full spectrum light on the stage, you, you can't see the forms of the dancers or the surface that they're dancing on. Sin is like this, this black light that only shows us part of what there is to see. That's how the enemy likes to lie to us. Often he, he doesn't make outright lies. He excludes information. He told Adam and Eve, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. And we end up with this warped view of the world, and it prevents us from seeing ourselves, seeing God, and seeing others as we really, truly are. And if we can't know ourselves, if we can't know others, it's very difficult to love one another, to love ourselves, to love others, and to love God. And that's why we need Jesus, the light of the world. That's what Deacon Casey talked about last week. Jesus said that I am the light of the world. And do you remember in the book of Acts, the, uh, Saul, who we know as the Apostle Paul, he was on the road to Damascus. His 
eyes were blinded already spiritually because he was persecuting the church of God. And he has this encounter with Jesus, and he loses his actual physical sight. Well, three days later, he's baptized. And it says that something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. It was this physical, visible representation of the spiritual reality that was happening inside of him. That's why in the early church, Christians would refer to their baptism as enlightenment or illumination. And that's not an instantaneous process. I don't imply that suddenly you become a Christian and all of a sudden the world makes sense and you love everybody and it's all perfect, right? That's not how it works. The Christian life is a journey towards seeing the world through God's eyes, seeing ourselves and others according to God's true full-spectrum light. When we see one another in God's true light, we can start to one, love one another with God's love. So let's allow 1 John to shed some light on a few things for us this morning. If you've got your Bibles with, me, with you, you can turn there. We're going to see how God's light transforms the way we see ourselves, the way we see God, and the way we see others. So first, let's look at how God's true light transforms the way we see ourselves. I'm going to be reading from 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. It says, my little children, by the way, that's how John addresses his audience. It's endearing. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. One of the things that happens when God opens our eyes to see ourselves in his true, full-spectrum light is we become more aware of our sin, of our flaws. And that seems like bad news at first, right? Because th there's a reason why the romantic restaurants have dim lighting. <laughs> because, because we don't want people to see our flaws, and we certainly don't want to see our own flaws. But this is good news. Because when we can see our sin, and we can see it for what it is, and we can see it for the ugliness that it is, not only does it help us avoid sin, right? John said that he, he wants them not to sin. Not only us to avoid sin, but it helps us to, to take that sin and bring it to Jesus, to bring it into the light. We need to bring it into the light because that's the only way that we can find forgiveness, the way that we can find freedom from our sin. It's the only way that we escape enslavement from our sin. Part of the Holy Spirit's role in our life is to convict us so that that's possible. There's a word here that we don't use very often, propitiation. It's even kind of hard to say. And so I want to talk about that for a second. In its original context, that word would refer to what, in pagan context, they would bring a sacrifice to appease an angry God to turn that God's wrath away from them to this, this sacrifice. And that's, that's kind of the connotation that it brings to mind. But for Christians, this is so beautiful. Because it's not an angry God who demands action from us. It is a God who is fully just, but also so loving. He actually sent his beloved son, who himself willingly gave himself 
for our sins so that sin could be punished. And we want a just God, right? We want, we want sin to be punished. We don't want to know that evil has the last word. We want evil to be eradicated. We need sin to be punished. But he's provided us with a way for, for us to be forgiven, for us to join with Jesus in his death and his resurrection so that we can be forgiven and walk in freedom. He gives this to us. And you know what that helps us do? It helps us to love others. No more do we have to be burdened down by our shame. No more do we have to crouch in darkness when presented with our flaws. It it releases us from our insecurities. I I don't know, not entirely, I know we still have insecurities, but do you know how sometimes it's hard to love people who have characteristics that remind you of all the things you hate about yourself? Have you noticed this? Right? It's like hearing your own voice recorded, except in somebody else. And, and all of those, all, all those, the, the, those internal voices, the, those things that we say to ourselves that aren't helpful, judging ourselves, suddenly we just want to turn them on that person. Right? And so as long as we're carrying all this shame and all this guilt, it becomes really hard to love other people who share our flaws. And what's more, if, if we're able to be forgiven, if we're recognizing our own sin, we can be a little bit less self-righteous. We can harp a little bit less on other people's faults because we see them as we are, broken people who need the redemption of a savior. And that's not to say we give bad behavior a pass, right? They need, other people need repentance too. And maybe our job is to help them come to repentance, but we can do it with gentleness, which is not only a more Christ-like way, but it also might be a little bit more effective. So seeing ourselves in God's true light helps us to love others. But second, God's true light transforms the way we see God. We all have some view of who God is. Whatever your background is, for some people, God is a a fabrication. For others, they might see God as a spiritual energy source or or an absentee parent. We have these ideas of who God is. And, And unfortunately, that same impaired spiritual vision that keeps us from seeing ourselves clearly, keeps us from seeing God clearly. Even if our understanding of God comes from the Bible, it's possible for us to lock in to a one-dimensional view of God's character. When I was in college, uh, I was a sophomore, and of course, as a sophomore, I had learned everything in my first year of college. That's that's how that goes. And so I I was sitting in, I was at a Christian college, so I had a New Testament class And the professor was talking about uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And he was telling us about different ways that that Christians and theologians have understood how we interact with that. And he said that some saw this as like an almost impossible ideal that's really just meant to show us our our, our sinfulness, our inability to to live up to it so that we will come for grace, uh, come in repentance to ask for forgiveness. And, and, And then he said that there are others who actually think that we need to take that seriously. We actually got, Jesus is actually calling us to live the way he taught. And he mentioned this German theologian who, who taught this, and for some reason, it kind of irked me that there was, because I was re- reacting against legalism, right? There was some legalism in my childhood, and it irked me that this German dude in his armchair in Munich or something was telling me how I needed to live my Christian life and was putting this burden on me that I couldn't carry. So I raised my hand, and I said, 
so th this sounds great and all. Of course, yeah, we should try to follow Jesus' commandments. But does this guy, this German guy, what's his name? Bonhoeffer? <laughs> d d did he sell everything he had and give, give it to the poor? And so you're laughing because uh, many of you know why this was a funny question. And my professor was very kind. And he just kind of stopped and he said, Dietrich Bonhoeffer died in a Nazi prison camp because of his convictions. And he carried on. What Dietrich Bonhoeffer was challenging me on through my professor was this view of God as someone who dispenses forgiveness, cheap grace, with no discipleship. I had locked into a one-dimensional view of God. And unfortunately, our impaired view of God makes a difference. It makes a difference because it gives us an impaired kind of obedience. If we see God as primarily as, as only a wrathful God, we become angry legalists. If he is only a merciful God, then we ignore injustice and the ravages of sin. If he's only omniscient, we puff ourselves up with knowledge. If he's only omnipotent, we try to hoard power and manipulate others. The way that we see God impacts the way we relate to our world and the way that we love others. Our love for others flows out of our love for God. So if we have an idolatrous vision of God, we're going to be impaired in our ability to obey him and to love others. But when God removes that veil from our eyes and enables us to see him as he has revealed himself, we find out that he is so beautiful, so powerful, so awesome, so wise and delightful that there is nothing we want to do more than to be in his will. And you know what? He's made his will known for us in the scriptures and in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to what John says in verse 3. He says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. God walked among us. He showed us who he is in his true nature. The miracle of the incarnation is that by becoming human, a human being in the person of Jesus Christ, God has given us a living, breathing, full-spectrum view of his nature, of who he is. And so the true measure of whether our faith is genuine, of whether we really know God, is not how many Bible verses we can quote, how many hymns we can sing off the top of our head. It's not whether we can read the Bible in its original Greek or Hebrew. It's how well our life reflects Jesus Christ. And what's more than that, and this is amazing, it says that our obedience perfects the love of God in us. If any of you have taken up gardening, uh, you, you know that a, a plant needs a healthy root system, right? in order for the leaves to be green and have the nutrients that, that, that they need to, to have that, that, those green pigments to, to activate that photosynthesis and all that stuff that I'm sure some of you science-y people can, can tell me about later. And, and then once you have those green leaves, then the sunlight, the energy from the sunlight allows the root system to be nourished. 
There is this relationship between the two. Our love for God fuels our obedience. And then that obedience fuels our love for God. As we see him, in obe- as we obey him, we come to know better who he is and we love him even more. There's this ongoing process of maturity, loving God and obeying God until we get to the presence of God in heaven when our obedience and our love will be perfect. And what does this obedience look like? What does God want from us? He wants us to love one another. That's his command to us. See, the third way that the light of Christ, the light of God transforms us is it transforms the way we see others. Let's look at verse 7 together. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The commandment is, the old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He doesn't give a commandment there. Did you notice that? There's like no command in this section. What happened? Well, John wrote the Gospel of John, so he actually already has a commandment in mind. And he uses the same language he uses, that John uses in, in John 13, 34. Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. So it's kind of assumed here. Love one another. That's the command. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And there's a sense in which that command is not new. Way back in the Old Testament, God told his people in the book of Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's not a new commandment. But there's a sense in which it is a new commandment. Because for the first time, God, the embodiment of love, became a human being. And through Jesus Christ, he showed what love looked like. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, he has opened our eyes to be able to see one another as God created us, as people beloved by God, so that we can fulfill this commandment in a whole new way. It allows us to see our neighbor as God sees them, deeply loved and forgiven. Then John goes on, he says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is what blindness, what spiritual blindness, what sin covering our eyes looks like. It's if if we're able to look at somebody for whom Christ died, who is loved so much that the Father sent his Son for them, if we're able to look at that person and revile them in our heart, and not just to be frustrated with them, but to hate them, to wish harm upon them, that's a sign that we still have a veil over our eyes. Sin is still blinding us. Because if we understand how deeply we are loved by God and how deeply our brother and sister is loved by God, we can't do anything but have our heart break for them. Now, I I, I want to be clear. Love and hate are not emotional reactions. We know this, but it it bears reminding. Emotions are okay. It's okay to feel angry. And and actually, chances are, someone in your life, in your church, at some point will make you angry. 
will disappoint you, will even hurt you. Sometimes it's the people closest to us that are most able to get us angry. All the parents in the room are making a silent amen. Love is something different than an emotional reaction. It's an active concern for the well-being of others. Sometimes it's a great action. Sometimes it's a small action. Sometimes we feel love in our heart. We feel good feelings. Sometimes we don't. It may be very visible, helping a neighbor bring in the groceries or clear their sidewalk or something like that. It might be invisible. No one may ever know the amount of effort that it took for you to hold your temper when this person was speaking so unfairly about you. Sometimes it's a great sacrifice. Sometimes not so much. It's no big deal. What makes it love is who it's for. That's what makes it love. Are you acting to benefit another person out of concern for another? Or is it for yourself? And if you want a good spiritual diagnostic about the health of your spiritual life, this is a good, a good thing to look at. Where does all of my attention go during my waking hours? What fills my thoughts? Is it thoughts of the people around me and their needs and how to care for them? Or am I thinking about myself a lot? And when I interact with other people, am I thinking about how they're going to serve me and how this fits into what I need to do and what I need for myself? And if it's the latter, that may be a sign that there's some sin that's blinding your eyes. Self-absorption is a sign that we may be drifting subtly away from God. And it's really easy to get caught up in that, especially when we've been by ourselves so much, right? It's easy to fall into that pattern. But my goal here is not to make you anxious. And I want to be clear about that. Because when we do find ourselves being self-absorbed, we can bring that to the Lord. If we do find ourselves harboring anger against someone, we can bring that to the Lord. My goal is not to make you anxious. It is to bring you joy. That's John's purpose. Because here's the thing. John is writing people who belong to Jesus. He's writing you. And I have full confidence, just as John does, that Jesus, if you've trusted in him, he has changed your life. He has forgiven you. And he is going to give you the power to love others. That's why this next section is all encouragement. All encouragement. He says, I'm writing to you, little children. That's what he calls the people that he loves that he's writing. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, and this could be mothers, too, and young women, too. I'm writing to you, young men and women, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. We don't manufacture love in our lives. God calls us to obey him. And it takes work, but he's the one who's doing the heavy lifting. He's the one who gives us the ability to love others. And I have confidence that if you will just open yourself to him, he wants to help you to do that. Even this week, I had a situation where I was really, really upset with, with a, a brother in Christ. And I, I, I found myself having a hard time loving this person. And I brought that to the Lord. I said, Lord, I'm having a hard time loving this person. I need your help. 
He wants to help you. He wants to forgive your hardness of heart and to open your heart to others. And so I want to take a moment together, because we have this time together, to do that, to just bring ourselves to the Lord. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer. I'm going to invite you, however you feel like you connect to God, sometimes closing our physical eyes opens up our spiritual sensibilities. Or maybe you need to look around the room at the people in the room as you pray these prayers. I just want to invite you to take a moment to silence your heart and join your prayer to mine. If the Holy Spirit speaks to you in some way, I just want to invite you to respond to that. Father, open my eyes to see myself as you see me. Help me to see myself as beloved. Help me to see my sins, even the hidden ones, and repent. The Lord brings to mind for you any lie that you've been believing about yourself, he gives you the gift of opening your eyes to see it as a lie, I invite you to confess that to the Lord. Lord, we repudiate these lies. They have no place in our hearts and in our minds. And we believe your truth about who we are. Lord, open our eyes to see you as you really are. Strengthen my affection for you, my desire to obey you. Strengthen my trust in your good purposes. If there's any lie that you've been believing about God that he exposes to you, I invite you to confess that to him right now. Lord, we repudiate these lies. We believe that you are good. We believe that you are just. We believe that you are king, that you will make all things right. Open our eyes to see our brothers and sisters as you see them. If you find yourself harboring a grudge against anyone this morning, near or far, I invite you to bring that to the Lord. Declare that this brother, this sister, is loved by you, that you died for them, that you desire their good. Lord, help us to see them with your eyes. Help us to love one another as you have loved us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.